We only make up 3% of police chiefs across this country with the more than 18,000 police agencies that we have. And I'm sure that African-American females are less than a half percent of that. So uh, yeah, we got our work cut out for us, but it's a time of opportunity. You're listening to the Black and Blue Podcast, a discussion and celebration of the roles of African Americans and other minorities in U.S. law enforcement. Your host on the Black and Blue Podcast is Gail Peters, a law enforcement professional with over 20 years experience in the business. Hop on board this Black and Blue train of interviews, current events, and pop culture conversations. So get ready. The Black and Blue Podcast is coming at you right now. Hey, Black and Blue fam, welcome to another Hot Like Fire episode of the Black and Blue Podcast. And this is where we celebrate diversity in U.S. law enforcement. If you don't know me, let me introduce myself. My name is Dale, and I'm the host of this program. And if you know me already, thank you for coming back for more. And let me ask you right now, if you haven't done so already, please make sure you click those like, subscribe, and bell icons right down here on my YouTube channel. And if you listen to me on your favorite podcast platform, please rate the Black and Blue Podcast five stars. And finally, make sure you head on over to any one of my social media pages for even more content. You can find me everywhere at Black and Blue US. All right, so with that down, let me introduce today's guest. She is the chief of police of an ever-growing city. Some of you may even heard, heard of before. So Black and Blue fam, let's welcome to the show Waco, Texas Police Chief, Cheryl Victorian. Hello. Hello. Hi, how are you? I am great. How about yourself? I'm doing absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mentioned you out in Waco, Texas. How's everything out in Waco today? Fantastic. It's a little cloudy here, but uh, it's everything is going very well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Waco, Texas. We, me and the fam were there uh, back in September for a cousin's wedding. We were actually in Dallas, and we drove through Waco to go down to San Antonio and check that out. So, yeah, yeah, that's a nice area down there. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful once you get off I-35. So, you know, next time you come through, I'm going to need you to come through the city. Okay. We have some absolutely beautiful sights. I know all you saw was construction coming through Waco. Yeah, yeah that, that's all we saw, yeah. <laughs> all we saw. But, uh, yeah, like I said, it's an ever-growing city. So uh, tell everybody out there a little bit about Waco, how large it is, um, the demographics and all that. Sure. So we have a population of 140,000. We cover 100 square miles. Um, wow. Yeah, right. So our city makes up uh, about 30% Hispanic, 20% Black, 44% White, um, and the rest other uh, ethnicities. Um, our police department is 267 strong. We have just been awarded one of the Department of Justice hiring grants. So we're able to add 12 more to our team in the next couple of, couple of years. So that's been very exciting. And we also have 109 support staff here. Uh, our police department, however, makes up 10% uh, African-American, 12% Hispanic and 77% white. Um, so we don't uh, reflect the community, uh, but we take advantage of the opportunities to show that our police officers, regardless of their ethnicities, can still serve in the capacity that's expected of law enforcement. However, we are looking to make sure that we have more diversity within our, uh, in the police department and in the ranks, so. Absolutely, absolutely. And how long have you been chief there? So I have been chief here for exactly one year, March the 15th, I celebrated one year. All right, happy anniversary. Thank you. All right. And, and uh, where'd you come from before there, before Waco? So I, I served with the Houston Police Department for almost 28 years. Um, I retired there as an assistant chief to take the job here as chief of police. Uh, I had a great career when I was with the Houston Police Department. Now I work patrol, gang task force. I worked major offenders for 11 years. 
worked in homicide, uh, child sexual abuse, training, internal, internal affairs. Um, so it was a fantastic career that just pr pretty much prepared me uh, for the rank that I am in now uh, with the city of Waco. So it was truly a blessing to be there. I never thought I'd leave the city of Houston, um, but I took the limits off and just been blessed ever since. Yeah, yeah. So you did everything over there at HPD, huh? Sounds like I did. I did. Yeah. Had a great time doing it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you originally from Houston, born and raised, or born and raised in Houston? Uh, like I said, yeah. never thought I'd ever leave the city of Houston. Uh, grew up in Sunnyside, and um, yeah, when I first became a police officer, I even went back patrolling in some in Sunnyside. So uh, yeah. that was very rewarding. But yeah. Grew up in Houston, was there all my life, was a product of Houston Independent School District Schools, um, went to Texas Southern University two times, and um, mm. earned, earned a master's degree from University of Houston downtown, got my bachelor's and PhD from Texas Southern University. That's so right, Houston PhD. hometown girl. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's sir. right, PhD. And, and what was the PhD in here? My PhD was in administration of justice. Okay, all right. So Dr. Chief Cheryl Victoria. Exactly. Or Chief Doctor, which which one do we go? It's Doctor Chief. Doctor. Yeah, I, I get Doctor Chief a lot, and, yeah. and then which is fine. You know, yeah, but you can yeah. call me Cheryl. I'm good with Cheryl. Okay, but, okay, yeah, all, right, doc, all right, Doctor Chief. Yeah. So you were born and raised in Houston. What what was your journey into this prof in this profession uh, from the beginning? Did you always want to be a police officer? Did you have family or friends that were police officers? Kind of steered you that way. What, what was your journey? had no family, no friends. And just to be honest with you, uh, as a young girl, four or five years old, I was definitely afraid of police officers. Um, my family had not had any negative interactions with the police. It's uh, just that my mom would take me to one of our local grocery stores and there was a constable there um, working an extra job and she would just try to get me to shake this gentleman's hand and I would fall out and embarrass her crying and screaming and kicking um, and I was afraid. And then a couple of years later, it didn't help that we had this mischievous neighbor who told me that the Houston Police Department's helicopter landed on our street and, and was looking for Cheryl and, <laughs> um, and asked if she was a Taurus. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's me. So every time uh, one of the Houston Police Department helicopters passed over and they were we were right our home was right in the flight path you know to get to oh, the really? airport and uh so every two hours or so we hear those blades and go running behind trees bushes you name it right and uh, i did that for a couple of years me and all my friends because we thought they were looking for me i don't know why i hadn't done anything um so <laughs> but my my dad passed away when i was nine years old and uh, he had a massive heart attack and passed away and we were going to bury him out of town. And as we were leaving the funeral home, um, I, my focus was on those solo motorcycle officers that were escorting us out of the city. They were compassionate and empathetic to our family as we um, were led to the car. And then as they led us out of the city, I just watched them and the respect that they were, you know, receiving from, um, you know, the community as we were escorted out of the city. And then after that, you know, my perspective began to change. And a few years later, the real Miami Vice came out and uh, yeah, yep. and I was yep. sold with Ricardo and Tubbs and working undercover and being a police officer. So by the age of 14, 15, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and did not steer the path. And uh, and here I am. Uh, it's been exciting. Um, I knew what I could do and what I couldn't do. Uh, I knew what, what I felt like the character and of police officers were and I knew that I had to maintain that in order to even qualify to be a police officer so right. did that and and here I am now when you say you knew what you could do and what you couldn't do what, what do you mean by that expand on that so I mean um I knew that there were I, I had friends that like to um uh let's say dabble and uh you know smoke weed or you know, stay out after hours and just make poor decisions, right? And I knew that there, those were people that I could not hang around or be associated with if I wanted to continue to um, walk the straight and narrow to be able to qualify to be a police officer when that time came. So I knew I had to make good decisions. Yeah. And did some of those friends, did you have to kind of leave behind afterwards and, you know, they kind of, or did they shape up and, and you guys are still cool today? No, absolutely. Um, some of them stayed the course of what they were doing, and then some, of course, matured. 
and yeah. uh, we're still really good friends. So, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. All right. And then you were enamored with the uh, Crockett and Tubbs and Miami Vice. Did you ever, did you ever work uh, undercover? The best part of my career is where okay, okay. <laughs> when I worked in major offenders for 11 years, I got to work undercover. So had no idea we even had a major offenders division. I was working patrol and um, then the gang task force. And after I got on the gang task force, I got a phone call from the sergeant and major offenders. And he was like, hey, I'm looking for somebody to come do some undercover work. And I, I didn't even ask him what type of undercover work. I was just like, yeah, I'm on yes. board. <laughs> and so, up. right, right. So this is back in the day when we were doing a lot of food stamp fraud, right? So okay. I would go on my own on my own time. I was working evening shift on uh, the gang task force. And in the morning time, I would go on my own time. I would get comp time for it and um, spend time with that unit going to do those undercover deals. And exactly right at a year later, they had a long-term investigation for credit card abuse and credit card fraud um, that they wanted me to infiltrate this group. And so I got a chance to be over there long-term. And over the course of four months, uh, we made 42 arrests and made a lot of felony cases. And so after that, uh, position became available and I was there and I was given the position. I earned that position. Um, and so I right. earned that spot <laughs> uh, in, in major offenders. So I, I, I stayed there for 11 years. And the only reason that I left was because our offenders were getting younger. I was getting older and the lingo was changing and I no longer was having fun. And um, it, it was time for me to go. So, yeah, those are probably the best. 11 years of my life as, as as an officer of my career as a police officer so major offenders is that like tracking down like you know robbers and homicide suspects and stuff like that or so we had different squads in major offenders division so we had the fugitive task force that did type that type of work but we did everything else that nobody else wanted to do right we had a vice division we had a narcotics division even though some some of the cases that uh, we were involved in did dabble in narcotics but in addition to maybe stolen property counterfeit trademarking um unlawful labeling uh, we did insurance fraud we continued to do the welfare fraud we bought and sold guns from gangbangers you know, I, I even found myself sitting in a driver's education school one time because they were operating without a license. Anything nobody okay. else wanted to do, we were doing. And uh, nice. because it was so diverse, um, it was a lot of fun. And so, yeah, we did we yeah. did it all. Yeah, those are probably the only assignments nowadays that there's real undercover work going on nowadays. Because uh, unlike Miami Vice, where you go in with, the you know, on the major narcotics, there's really not too much undercover in, in those professions anymore it's more using ci's nowadays because you know because most of it's controlled by cartels so uh, at least in major narcs so you, you can't really get in with <laughs> with a cartel right. just but, uh, you know all of a sudden so uh yeah so a lot of that's just utilizing ci's and all that sort right. of stuff but yeah if you're doing you know frauds and all that sort of stuff yeah you can you can definitely get some undercover work in they set you up i had a buddy that uh was working uh financial crimes and he got set up they set him up in a whole office you know he was you know oh, wow. laundering money yeah so he was yeah. you know working as a you know money launderer wow yeah, yeah it's, that's a lot of fun at one point they had us working in i don't know if you're gonna remember these circuit cities we were oh, best yeah. by and so okay so they had yeah. us working in circuit city for a couple of months um where these guys were coming in and using their fake credit cards and we would document the information and then um they were walking out with merchandise and those employees at circuit city did not understand why these two ladies could come in and only work for four hours two or three days a week uh you know on this long-term yeah. basis until we made those arrests in their parking lot that day so nice yeah that kind of stuff was fantastic it was a lot of fun yeah, yeah, undercover, that, that, that's great stuff because that's about the only time that you can see a crime as it's happening. And then, you know, because most of the time in police work is after the fact, you know, even the homicide, you know, uh, it, it's important to track down those offenders and, and sex offenders and all that. But, you know, you, you're not there, obviously, when the, when the crime goes down to stop it or arrest the offender right there. So undercover work, that's the way to go. Yeah. Well, I Good got stuff. a chance to do it. So, yeah, right. got to check yeah. that box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So does does Waco? Do you have any? Have you implemented any sort of undercover programs or uh, narcotics programs or anything like that at, at Waco? So we already have a drug enforcement unit um, in uh, our uh, Texas Anti Gang Office here in Waco. So 
yeah, that's the extent. Um, we do have a couple of proactive squads that we have. But they don't do undercover work per se, mostly surveillance, right, and um, proactive activity. So, yeah. Okay. All right. And you are a female, obviously. And, uh, you know, <laughs> congratulations for, for me figuring that out. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. What's uh, what's the makeup of females in your department? So we have 15% female uh, with the okay. Waco Police Department, right? So, um, you know, it's a couple of percentage points um, above the national average, which is just a little bit more than 12%. Um, however, we are working diligently to make sure that our young ladies understand that this is something that they can do and not just do, but excel in. Um, currently, I only have one female commander of 11, and I have two um, female sergeants of 36. Um, we just recently had our first women in public safety symposium this past Thursday, as a matter of fact. But what we did was invite some of our local high school students. We offered them an opportunity to participate in an essay contest. And so they were selected to attend this women in public safety symposium. Um, it were criminal justice students uh, at, at the local high schools here. So they had an opportunity to join us, for us to network, for us to determine um, what they wanted to do in the field of criminal justice and kind of keep them on track uh, to, to replacing us in years to come. So we're being proactive in making sure that we're going to be represented really well. Uh, we, I participate in this uh, project or the initiative, and you may have interviewed ladies about the 30 by 30 initiative with the New York uh, Policing Project. Uh, and where we are aiming to have 30% females represented in law enforcement by the year 2030. So, um, yeah, we are very, very uh, engaged and involved in making sure we're showing women their strengths in the profession of criminal justice and particularly law enforcement uh, to meet that goal of having 30% women by 2030. Yes, yes, because, you know, uh, our our population is you know fifty percent female, uh, for the most part. So you know it's only right that we have at least fifty percent or, or upwards in that direction in law enforcement in every profession. So you know we we, we can't have it that way. You got it like we were talking about mirroring mirroring your community, and having females in those positions is is part of that. Exactly, I agree. Yeah. Yep. You know, and, and, and we only make up 3% of police chiefs across this country with the more than yeah. 18,000 police agencies that we have. And I'm sure that African-American females are less than a half percent of that. So, uh, yeah, we got our work cut out for us, but it's a time of opportunity. So, yeah, yeah. You're putting in the work to, to kind of make that change. Now, I'm sure mentorship is, is a big part of your your makeup as well. Um, were there any mentors that kind of helped you along the way? So, you know, I never really had one particular person who uh, mentored me throughout my career, but I had several women who were very impactful in my decision uh, to want to promote to assistant chief. All I wanted to do is promote to assistant chief and work a couple of years and ride out into the sunset, right? Mm -hmm. um, but as I began to promote throughout the organization, uh, even women from the outside and, and on, you know, internally uh, were there to offer advice or to offer, um, you know, recommendations for professional development opportunities. So I never really had um, any one person per se, uh, but I will recognize uh, my friend, Chief Vera Bumpers, whom you, I, I'm sure you had on the show before, uh, when I promoted to assistant chief, she was one of the first persons to reach out to me on social media and just say, hey, here I, she's a, the police chief for the Metro Police Department in Houston, and say, hey, I'm here. If there's everything you need, um, please reach out to me, right? Um, to be that voice outside of the Houston Police Department if I needed to vent, if I needed to ask questions, if there were things that I didn't know. So I really appreciate her to this day for uh, extending that hand. And so um, as a police chief and as somebody, when I was an assistant chief, I thought it was important that I reached back and make sure that I was preparing young ladies for positions and to take my my spot, you know, as I promoted throughout the organization. So. Um, that's something that's near and dear to my heart that I still do to this day with young ladies that are uh, in Houston. And even since I've been here, I've had young ladies to reach out to me that I now communicate with to help them along this path in law enforcement. Yeah, yeah. That's a mark of a, of a good leader. 
to have you know good people behind them as well because you you hear of some leaders especially in team sports that don't really want someone just as good as them or better than them on their staff uh, to surpass them and possibly take their job one day so you know and then so then in that vein they're not successful because they don't have good people behind them too exactly and you know we've been accused of that a lot um you know in the last 29 years that I've been in law enforcement of not, you know, reaching down and helping somebody else climb that ladder like there's not enough room at the top for all of us um, when actually there is. Sometimes we yep. just have to be outside of our, look outside of our comfort zone, which to me was HBD at the time, and um, you know, see that there are other opportunities with other agencies, you know. It, it took me leaving HPD to realize that there's life outside of HPD. Um, but, <laughs> and that's the message, right. And that's one of the messages that I try to tell you. Not that I'm trying to get anybody to leave the Houston Police Department, but as they grow and develop, if they don't see opportunities for advancement, it's okay to start applying to other agencies and you know offering your talents, your skills, and your abilities to somebody else, right? So yeah. uh, there's always room at the top for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you first started out, you know, as a female, how how was that experience on the job when you first started out? Did you get a lot of, uh, you know, males? You know, because again, this is a male-dominated profession. Did you get a lot of? You had to prove yourself. You had to, you know, work twice as hard. All that sort of stuff. You know, I always felt that as a female um, and as an African-American that I have had to, to, (laughs) that I've always had to do the extra. For example, um, but one of the things, though, let me just put this out here. I absolutely love what I do. I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. And we probably made up about seven to eight percent females when I first joined policing back in 1983. Um, so the the way was kind of paid for me. So if there were issues with both African-Americans or Blacks, I really didn't hear about it. Um, but I did always feel like I had to go the extra mile to um, prove myself and to show that I belonged here, right? Um, made sure that I maintained beat integrity. And if you come into, you know, supervisor in my area, you're not going to see calls holding uh, for me. When they bumped for a female to check by, that I was going to make myself available and, um, you know, make sure that I was checking by. When I got that call from major offenders, being willing to go on my own time to go and work and do undercover work um, to make sure that people knew who I was and um, knew the type of work that I could do, right? And then we're talking about promotional opportunities. When I came on with a bachelor's degree, when I realized that everybody was getting a master's degree and you get extra points when you're testing, then I realized I needed to earn a master's degree. And then as I started promoting, well, I didn't didn't promote until... um, no, that was when I was a lieutenant. But when I started promoting and I realized that you get extra points for uh, having extra degrees, right? You get one point for a bachelor's, two points for a master's, three points for a PhD at the end of the process, which could move you forward with the Houston Police oh, yeah. Department, which was a very, very competitive process, which could move you forward several spaces, right? So when I realized everybody was going on getting a master's degree, um, I always wanted to get a PhD because I knew I wanted to teach at the college level. So I went and earned my PhD. And those three points actually pushed, pushed me forward six spots um, uh, on the commander's exam and, and put me from number nine after the test in the assessment center to number three. Um, so nice. I always felt like I had to go out and do extra and do a little more um, to make sure that um, I kind of stood out above the rest. Because if not, I think I just would have got lost in the pack with everyone else. Um, so, so yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so you know, I, I, I was... Go ahead. Education. Education is, is a big, big uh, point, big part of, uh, you know, your career growth in law enforcement. You know, uh, a lot of people ask, do you need a degree? Uh, and you don't need a degree in, in a lot of departments to enter. But if you want to advance, you obviously do, you know, just hearing your stories right there. So I always tell people, yeah, if, if you've got two people that are applying for for, a, you know, a sergeant spot, a lieutenant spot or what have you. And, you know, one has a degree and the other one doesn't and everything else being equal, they're probably going to choose the one with the degree only because of the the point structure and all that as well. Right. Exactly. And then, you know, um, and research shows that, you know, the higher education you get, the better communicators we are, the better writers we are, um, you know, and uh, I think 
it, it also increases some of our levels of emotional intelligence um, okay. as we deal with other people um, and, you know, just learn more about our profession. So it can only make us better. Absolutely. Yep. Learn to uh, solve problems, problem solving, mm-hmm. thinking outside the box, all those sorts mm-hmm. of things. So. You know, exactly. I, I got a, I got a master's. I, I'm probably going to stop there. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to PhD. So, yeah. But uh, hey, my wife's a PhD. She's yeah. you know she's a psychologist. Oh. So all right, that matters. <laughs> yeah. So and I counts. at least had to I at least had to you know at least get my master's yeah, to kind of keep up with her. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So okay. are are you in are you in your office right now? I am in my office. What? Okay, I'm, I'm seeing some pretty good stuff behind you there. It looks like one's a gold record. Uh, yeah. Yeah, what, so, what was that? Were yeah. you a singer or what? No, no, okay. by no means. So when I was working undercover, we did a lot of um, unlawful labeling cases with the Recording Industry Association of America, and uh, we did quite a few. And so the gentleman that was working with us um, in contract uh, recommended that our unit be awarded for the work that we were doing with the unlawful labeling at the time. I mean, that was CDs back in the day when people were, you know, unlawfully yeah. copying CDs and selling yep. CDs and making making money off those CDs. And so, yeah, he recommended that we get a gold award with the Recording Industry Association of America, and and they awarded us with one. So it's nice. one of my, um, yeah, it's one that I always value so and really like. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm big into music. So, you know, you, you mentioned CDs and, you know, even going back further, you know, if you look behind me here, you know, I got some 45s on the wall, if you remember that. So yeah, 45s and, and vinyl and all that sort of stuff, you know, vinyl's coming back and, you know, nowadays. So people are yeah. you know, collectors and yeah, vinyl's coming back. So yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a DJ uh, when I'm not doing this. So, uh, you know, I kind of steered towards more the the digital you know because it's just yeah. easier going to an event with digital as, a, as opposed to crates of records like we used to do back in the day right. but yeah i appreciate that and yeah, uh great. i may have heard some you know uh cassette tapes you remember those too right yes i do yeah. absolutely <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah. yeah yeah we had the yeah, hey i remember with the, when my with dad had uh, with the pencil yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember when we had eight tracks come on now my oh, dad had yeah. a band with an with eight track mm-hmm. in it so yep Yep. So I remember that. All right, we're dating ourselves, Chief. I know, but hey, it's what it is. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah I keep yeah. waking up. They'll be here yep. too. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. So uh, you know, coming up as a as a female in the ranks, did you ever find yourself you know kind of stereotyped? I, I know you wanted to to get into undercover and major crimes and all that sort of stuff, um, but did you kind of find yourself, hey, when a when a sexual assault came up? Hey, give it to Victorian or, you know, a rape, you know, something like that came up, you know, obviously there's going to be times when, when they needed a female to search a female, you know, that's going to happen if, if there's a female on duty, but uh, never find yourself typecasted or you just wanted to kind of make sure you, you broke that mold. Yeah. I, I don't remember any specific instances where that happened, you know, but I did realize coming in that, you know, um, females were usually responsible for our, family violence, domestic violence incident, and and women who may have been victims of sexual assault and juvenile cases and and that type of thing. But um, I don't remember in my short time on patrol as a patrol officer and a game task force officer um, being the one, you know, as a female being called on to go handle this call um, primarily because of the type of call that it was. So um, one thing that I do remember, though, I, I had a partner who um, was, uh, when I first, I was still on the program. Oh, I was, I had gotten off the field training program, but we still had a length of time that I had to ride with a partner before my probationary time was up. And um, we used to go out and he would tell me, hey, you, you need to stay in a car. I got it. I got it. And I never thought it was because he um, did not believe in my ability to get the job done. I think he thought he was being a gentleman. It was the winter time. It was cold. Uh, and some nights it was raining and we were working night shift. And, you know, um, after the second, third time, I was like, no, I need to get out. I'm still learning. And besides, if something happened to my partner, how am I going to explain it? I'm still sitting in the car. And mm-hmm. so I, did, I I went in. I was like, no, I'm getting out. So I went in. And when I went in, he, he and uh, one of the suspects or a suspect were going toe to toe. And um, 
he was cursing my partner, my partner was cursing him, but every time he would, the suspect would curse, he'd look at me and say, I'm sorry, ma'am. And then he continued to go on with my partner. He did that like two or three times. I'm sorry, ma'am, Tim, Tim. And at that point, my partner and I saw an opportunity and I just kind of nudged my partner on out of the way and handled that situation. And then I think after that night, he realized my value and I was never asked to stay in the car again. Yes. Uh, so I think that that was uh, one of the funnier stories, um, but it wasn't, I don't think it was because he did, he, you know, thought my, my ability lacked. I think he just thought he was being a gentleman. Right. And that, and that's the fight too, though. Uh, you know, us males sometimes thinking we, we're trying to be gentlemen, but that's not the time or the place to try to be gentlemanly, you know, we're, right. we're on equal footing, right? We're, we're both right. there that's to do, right. do the job, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but one one good thing I know uh, traits of females though that uh, a better um, say trait to to uh, be able to de-escalate situations you know coming in and and just like that situation you just said right there you know this guy was was saying ma'am and and calming down and all that sort of things a lot a lot of times those guys don't uh, aren't uh, the best de-escalators and want to go in and, and handle it you know with brute force but uh, exactly. females have learned to have learned to, to deal with it with, with talking and, that, and that's the way we should do in the, in the first place, right? Right. Communication to me is key in the way that we communicate because, you know, a lot of times, I'm not a little girl, but a lot of times you're arresting people who are twice your size or who are, who are bigger in stature, right? And so I don't want to have to fight you. I'll fight you if I have to, but I don't want to have to fight you. Um, but so I think we, re we realize that. And so that way we use... Uh, communic our communication skills, our listening skills, or our body language and their body language in order to de-escalate situations, right? Um, so that we don't have to take it to that next level. So yeah, you're right. Uh, and, and research has shown that females use force a lot less than males use force. Um, and I think it's because um, we're okay, we're effective communicators and, and don't necessarily go in with a chip on our shoulder and show, I'm going to show you who's the biggest guy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. Yes. That, that um, fact right there. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, absolutely. but yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. And de-escalation is a, is a big topic nowadays. Uh, is that sort of training kind of big in your department? Or are you guys on top of that? Because I know uh, it's being codified in a lot of uh, states now. Uh, if we weren't doing it in policy, it's being, you know, codified in, in state laws now that you, you know, must take de-escalation steps, right? Right. And so I'm really, really proud of our team. Um, we have a police, we call it the police tower, and um, we do a lot of scenario-based training, reality-based training, um, and communicating in order to get um, someone to comply. And uh, I, I say that because I know when it's going on because I'm on eight and they, uh, we do that training on seven. So <laughs> sometimes I get to hear the training as it is going on. So yeah, I think uh, that we do a great job in trying to uh, keep up and preparing our officers to de-escalate situations, you know, uh, by being more effective communicators as opposed to using force. Absolutely. And, you know, we're coming out of pandemic and we're coming out of all, all the things that happened in 2020 and 2021 as far as uh, you know George Floyd and Maude Arbery and Breonna Taylor and all that sort of stuff how, how did that you know those incidents affect you and your agency in particular uh, when all that went down so I was with the Houston Police Department at the time of those I'm sorry at the time um, of George Floyd and I'll just have to tell you that very first night that I saw that video of George Floyd um, I, I really, I didn't think it was real. I thought it was something that um, had happened a long time ago. And I'm sitting in my bed, and I'm shaking my head going, this, what is this? What happened? What is this? And then when I learned that it was just the night before on Memorial uh, Day, uh, I mean, I, I broke down and I cried because I'm thinking to myself, gosh, because by this point in my career, um, I because I, I'll be honest with you, when I first became a police officer, the only thing I wanted to do was put the bad guy in jail. Bad guy had to go and go to jail. Prevention and intervention uh, was not my thing. Uh, community service was not my thing. Um, bad guy break the law, he goes to jail. But um, as I promoted throughout the ranks and matured more, I realized that prevention and intervention were just as valuable as apprehension. And so at that point in my career, um, I, not, I always there are some people that 
deserve to be in jail and they should be in jail. So apprehension is still high on the list, but I also understand the importance of trying to reduce crime through prevention and intervention. And so I've been doing a lot of that work as an assistant chief with the Houston Police Department. And that night of that incident and watching um, this man murder George Floyd, I realized that all the work that we have been doing those years that I was an assistant chief had just been reversed. It's like we're going to be, we're starting over now. How dare somebody who wears this uniform that I wear tarnish our badge by uh, pride um, and abuse of his authority, right? How, how is he, how did we come from being law enforcement officers and peace officers to being the judge and the jury and administering punishment? That, that's not who we are. And so I was devastated by that and then devastated two nights later when I saw them um, burning a police station and as you know and looking in the crowd and seeing a whole lot of people that look like me um, doing it right and so I'm thinking to myself oh my god people hate what we do that much that they're burning down a police station right and I just realized that we had so much work to do right um, in our communities outside of our communities um, and felt like we had just went back you know 30 years and so it was a difficult time and um, so we dealt with days, months of, of protesting, um, and I, I saw an opportunity there. I, as an, um, a commander, I had the opportunity to go to the FBI National Academy. And while at the National Academy, um, they one of the field trips were to the Holocaust Museum. And the reason that they took us to the Holocaust Museum, because they wanted to show us our uh, propensity to be able to, um, as leaders, um, buy in to some of the laws that were, um, or some of the perspectives or ideals that were really unethical, right? And so um, I thought that was a very humbling experience when I went to the Holocaust Museum and then my first year as an assistant chief, it culminated into a visit to the actual Holocaust Museum in Krakow, um, Poland. And so I was actually on the grounds and visited the grounds. And um, I remember a saying by uh, George Santayana on the wall and it said that those who do not remember the past are destined to repeat it. And so I started thinking, I was like, you know, um, what if there's a message here for me? What if there's something that I can do as an African-American female to um, share the history of policing and the traumas of policing with my um, white counterparts or, or, or anybody, even my African-American counterparts that didn't um, talk about history, that didn't talk about slavery. You know, it may have been a paragraph in the history book. Well, when I grew up, we talked about history and black history. And so I had to talk about those generational um, mistrust issues in the black community. And so we were working with a social worker at the time on a different project, uh, Professor Alba Brown from the University of Houston. And I told her, I said, I, I want to put together a training that talks about the historical traumas of policing. Um, and so our officers can do some perspective taking, not necessarily um, I don't want anybody thinking that we're trying to point the finger at them, but I think if our officers have a better understanding of where we came from, then they can be more compassionate, more sympathetic, or more empathetic as to why there's so much mistrust in the African-American community. Right. And so we worked together and we built a, a class called Building Trust from Trauma. And it talked about the historical traumas of policing on a um, global level. Then it brought it down nationally, and then it brought it down specifically to the city of Houston. And we talked about those trust building and trust eroding events that we had in the city of Houston and why there are mistrust in certain, you know, particularly communities of color. And I'm talking not just African-Americans, but um, Mexican-Americans as well, Hispanic-Americans as well. So um, that was something that I did just before I left the city of Houston. And as I left, the class had been um, ongoing and uh, I had a couple of my officers after I got here to Waco to go to Houston to actually uh, witness that course, take notes from that course so that we can develop something like that of our own here in the city of Waco so that our officers can just, you know, do. I, I've been called, oh, now she's calling us Nazis. Now, you know, she's uh -huh. pointing the finger. That's not exactly, you know, that, those are, I'm not going to get everybody, you know, yeah. but for the most part, those in the city of Houston and police department, they understood uh, the message that I was sending, you know, um, 
to just do some perspective taking and put yourself in the shoes of African-Americans who had experienced Jim Crow laws, you know, bloody patrols, um, uh, um, uh, slum, sorry, slave patrols, um, you know, and, and the fact that you and I can't drink out of the same water fountain or go to the same bathroom. And those were laws that were actually being enforced by police officers. Yes. So, yeah, that's why, you know, uh, part of the reason why African-Americans don't trust, um, you know, police officers. And it's yeah. been passed down from generation to generation to generation. So anyway, right. so that was one of the you know, major on the, on the devil's advocate side, you know, also here. Hey, you know, but that was that was, you know, back in the 60s. That was back in the 50s. You know, why, why can't black folks just move on? And you know what, that was, and I would get, that was back then, and that wasn't me. It wasn't me that did right. that, right? Yeah. I'm a different person, which is one of the reasons I thought it was so important that um, we did that, because I'm like, you guys have to understand that it's not who you are. These people don't know us individually. You know, there are African-Americans that are mad at me because I'm still a police officer, but they don't know us individually. It's the recognize, it's the uniform, and what the uniform represented during that time that is so that you know builds so much mistrust and, and trauma uh, to things that have happened in the past and again it's been passed on from generation to generation to generation that you don't trust the police so we have a lot of work to do and you know and people think that oh they always say these are challenging times and i i absolutely do not agree i think that these are times of opportunity and um an opportunity for us to pro- pro- policing is changing and we have to change with it. Um, so these are learning opportunities for us to be better at what we do and to provide the services that this noble profession set out to um, provide, right? And for Indeed. us to be peace officers, right? Peace so officers. which is what we what we started to be. So, so yeah, that was something that came out of the um, George Floyd protest, the death, the murder of George Floyd, um, yeah. for me as a, as an assistant chief and now as a chief. All right. All right. Love to hear that. Love to hear that. So what what are some of the more rewarding parts as your part is your uh, position as chief of police? So um, some of the more rewarding parts for me, um, matter of fact, this morning I got an opportunity. Can't see it. I got a little plant and a card over there. I had an opportunity to go spend 30 minutes in an elementary school right here in the neighborhood where the tower is to talk to kids about, you know, policing and police work and making sure that we're still sharing with our community that this is a noble profession. Uh, and I am fortunate to be in a community that loves and supports their police. Yeah, you know, do we still have some bridges that we need to connect? Absolutely, but for the most part, our community loves the police. And I wanna make sure that our little boys and our little girls, particularly our little girls, know that they can grow up and be a police chief, uh, you know, coming out of a neighborhood that, that was poor, right, and, and coming from a single family, I mean, a single parent home uh, with a mom who raised four kids uh, who all went to college and, you know, and did not get into any trouble. We were very, very blessed. And, um, and, and if I can make it, you can make it too. Um, one of the things I think is most rewarding is when I'm out in the public and I see a young girl um, say the girl police or uh, or she's a police officer or, or yeah. you know, not realizing that we're even in this profession. Right. And then to let them know that I'm the chief and that if, if you know, they want to be a chief one day, that it is absolutely attainable. If they want to do more, it is absolutely attainable. So absolutely attainable. Yep, that's that's great. That's great. And on the flip side, what's uh, one of the more challenging parts of your job as a chief? I think one of the more challenging uh, parts of my job was coming in from the outside as a chief uh, coming in from the city of Houston, right? And then being the first African-American and the first female at this department, um, I had to make sure that I hopped right in and showed them who I was and established that credibility that was on paper. and uh, so far, so good. Uh, do I still have my challenges? I, I had an incident um, that I, I talk about now because this was in arbitration where I had someone on um, audio recording um, challenge whether or not I could make a good decision in a case because I was black and a woman. And so, uh, wow. yeah. And, yeah. 
and said that on record. He did not know he was being recorded. He was being recorded by uh, my officer who had lost his job. But um, that was another police officer from another agency that made that that made that comment. And you know, and it, it just it hurt for a second. But then I thought, you know what? It's the world. It's it's where we are, Cheryl. And um, you know, I don't care how many years I'd spent in law enforcement, what my uh, background is, the fact that I've been in all of those investigative divisions, the fact that I promoted through the rank from officer to sergeant to lieutenant to commander to assistant chief and now chief, the fact that I've earned my PhD, um, it was still people out here that felt, felt that mm. way, right? And so that was just that realization. But then at the same time, what counters that is when I have one of my um, uh, white male counterparts, sergeants who come up into my office and say, you know, when I came on this floor, I came on this floor hundreds of times. And um, I, I, but when I came up here this day to come see you and I looked up and I saw your picture, I smiled. Um, and, and that it's those instances right there that make me um, that kind of counter the negative instances, because at that moment, he did not see me as a black female. You know, he did not see me as a black. He didn't see, that, see me as a female, but he saw me as his chief. And um, and that's what's important. That is, that is. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. Mm-hmm. All right, Chief. So, so what? What do you like to do when you're not working? I'm assuming oh, you get time off, right? Well. <laughs> you know, the little time that I do get, I, I love to travel, um, uh, and I'm good at mentoring. I love mentoring. I love talking about leadership anytime that I can. Uh, I teach adjunct at Southern New Hampshire University online, and I also have the opportunity to teach criminal justice and community law enforcement at Baylor University this year. So uh, I enjoy doing that. Um, I, I, I was a playwright. I, I've written plays, uh, okay. Christian plays. So I haven't written anything in a long time, but um, but those are some of the things that I just really enjoy doing when I do have free time. Nice. Nice. All right. Yeah. Yep. We many layers. We're we're not a monolith as I like to tell people right. all the time, as African Americans and as people. So yeah. That's right. Love to hear it. That's Love to right. hear it. Mm-hmm. All right, Chief. I, I appreciate you coming on and uh you know, giving us some some great knowledge about you, but you are not done yet. I got a little game Uh-oh. for you, a little trivia game here for you before we get you out of here. So let me okay. get this on for you. This game is called uh, Black or Blue. 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 Come on. All right, Chief, this is my black and blue game, and your game today is called All My Exes Live in Texas. This is right. in Waco. All right. Uh, famous people from Texas. All I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you a person. You tell me, are they from Texas, either born or raised in Texas or not? That should be real simple, right? Oh, okay. Let's do this. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you'll do fine here. Here's your first one here. How about Arnold Schwarzenegger? Is he from Texas? No. No, he is Definitely not from Texas. Uh, he's from like Austria or something like that. See, just like that, just like that. Okay, all right, sounds all good. Right. Okay, here we go. How about uh, your next one here? How about uh, Jamie Fox? Is he from Texas? Yes. Yeah, he is from Texas. He's from uh, Terrell, Texas. Wherever that is, you know where that is? I think it's outside of Dallas, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. From from Google. Google, help me out with that one. <laughs> All right, all right, all right, cool. How about uh, Carol Burnett? Is she from Texas? Oh, no. Oh, unfortunately, yes, she is. She's from San Antonio. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. right. Only one strike here for you. How about your next one? How about uh, Salma Hayek? Is she from Texas? Yes. Oh, oh. Yeah. I, I, I thought I threw you a softball there. No, she's not from Texas. Yeah. She's from See, somewhere in South America. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, the other way around. How about you Regina King? Regina King. Is she from Texas? No. Yeah, that's correct. She is not from Texas. Okay. She's not from Texas. Okay, humming along here. How about uh, Woody Harrelson? Is he from Texas? I would say yes. He is. <laughs> he is from Texas, from Midland. Midland. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I read that he was there up until high school, and then he moved to Ohio. So, but he was born oh, in okay. born in Texas up to high school. All right. Wow. How about uh, Beyonce? Is she from Texas? Absolutely. Absolutely. She's from uh, your hometown, right? 
Yeah. Houston. Houston. All right. How about uh, how about her husband? How about Jay Z? Is he from Texas? No. No. He's from New York. New York. Yeah, he's from New York. So, uh, all right. And uh, your last one here. How about Steve Martin? Is he from Texas? I'll say yes. Yes, he he's from where you are now. He's from Waco. Yes. All right. So you got more right than you got wrong. So we're gonna call you. Winner. Alright, Chief, that was awesome. Yeah, so you pulled it Absolutely. out there in the end. You pulled it all out right, there in the end. Alright, alright. Alright, so again, thank you for coming on. But uh before we get you out of here, what about some words of wisdom, uh some parting shots on your way out the door? Yeah, so I would just like to tell anybody who is in leadership, one of the reasons that I decided to promote um, to throughout the ranks to assistant chief was because I ran into somebody with some rank who was too good to even say hello or ask how we were doing. So just know that as you're going through the ranks, you are never too important to be nice to people, to people, anybody. Um, so that would be my words, my few words of wisdom. I uh, just like to give a shout out to my family, my big sisters, Gwendolyn Jefferson, and uh, my sister Jacqueline Jefferson, and my brother Robert Jefferson, Jr., Robert Jefferson III. All right, yeah, family is important. Got to get that shout out. Yes. Yes. All right, Doctor Chief Victorian, <laughs> I appreciate you coming on. Uh, yeah, much success in the future and uh oh yeah you know you you are in waco now and uh we we talked earlier about uh you know people that you run into in waco have you had a chance to run into those two famous uh people from waco that uh, make a show from there yet i have not ran into chip and joanna Gaines. however i was just at their restaurant making all your table this past saturday it's fantastic (laughs) all right all right hopefully they can get Mm -hmm. you in there and and you're all set up with your house and all that right so they don't need to come in and Remodel yeah, house you know, anything, right? be, that's a long story. So, no, I'm still in a real house. So I would love for Chip and Joanna to come oh, in. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, they do some good stuff watching their Take program. Care, so, hopefully, right? she, yeah. They do. <laughs> All right. All right, Chief. Thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate Absolutely. you. My be safe pleasure. out there. Thank you. Absolutely. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye bye. Yes, indeed, Black and Blue fam. That was Waco, Texas Police Chief Cheryl Victoria. Thank you for coming on to the program, Chief. I appreciate all you do for women, African-Americans, and the citizens of your community. You guys out there enjoyed this episode too? Make sure you click that like button right here on my YouTube channel or rate it five stars on your favorite podcast platform. I'll be back in two short weeks with another Hot Like Fire episode. Same black time, same black channel. But till then, y'all know the phrase, stay black in blue. I'll holla at you. Deuces. This has been a Nature D Entertainment presentation.